Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm so excited to introduce you to Cy Wakeman. She is the president and founder of Reality-Based Leadership. Now, Cy and I met at the Work Human Conference, and I got to tell you, there's something about this woman. She just makes you want (laughs) to smile and have fun. I literally sort of stumbled on her table and was like, oh my God, I like you guys. I've never met you before. So They kind of kidnapped you and held you captive, I think. (laughs) I'm so glad you did. It made my day. So anyway, I'm just really excited to share with all of you digital selfers today a little bit more about Sai and her work. Welcome, Sai. Thank you, Heidi. So glad we connected. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit more about your work, because we sort of, as we sort of stumbled on each other, we shared a little bit, but what is it you do? I know you deal a lot with sort of drama and the drama, drama. in the workplace. So tell Absolutely. us Absolutely. You know, I had an accidental discovery in my career that actually created my career as a drama researcher. And it's not the theater type of drama that you think, but I research how much drama there is in the workplace. So how much emotional waste is leaked out, how much energy goes away from our own engagement, happiness, and productivity. And I've been able to quantify that and really put some dollars around that and help businesses understand what an amazing opportunity it is for them to recapture and upcycle that energy and put it back into results. That's pretty amazing because believe me, I mean, I left the corporate workspace, even though I always worked a lot as a consultant. One of the things that I loved about being a consultant is I didn't have to get entangled in that drama (laughs) piece of it. I could sort of you know, it's kind of like being the the nice aunt. You know, you come in and you play with the baby and then when it starts crying, you hit it back. Exactly. Exactly. I'm a founder of my own company and I worked first as a therapist and then as, you know, in healthcare as a leader. And I had just a very low tolerance for the noise and the drama. And this isn't people's humanness because a lot of people say, you know, I need to bring my whole self to work. And I would always respond, no, I just want you to bring your most evolved self to work. And so the drama is the difference between you as an individual being in low self or high self. Like, And that was the part a lot of people would say, as a leader, I did a lot of turnarounds. They would say, what do you need us to do? And I'd say, I want to talk about how I need you to do things. The what is your expertise you bring to the table. I expect you to deliver that. As your leader, I'm really here to talk about the how and to make sure there's not this big waste going on. And so that was confusing to people a lot of times. I imagine it was because a lot of people don't have the self-awareness to really understand what the difference of those two things are. They don't. And I believe a lot of people don't have the self-awareness because they've never been asked to self-reflect that most of what we do in leadership is we tell and we develop and we grow others. And instead of just saying, why don't you think about how that's working? It's like, well, let me give you feedback on how it's working. And we really have a really different model that we believe it's not about the feedbacks. Feedback should be short, but self-reflection is long. So a lot of people don't have the insight because no one's called them up 
to really use that muscle or that skill set to be self-reflective. You know, we've found that personal curiosity is really the ultimate drama diffuser. So mm. we love personal curiosity. So do you have any favorite tools that you use to help people sort of inspire that curiosity? You know, we have a whole toolkit. We really believe in tools for self-reflection because a lot of folks, I tell them, don't take my word for it. You ask you, what is your experience? Like you've been with you your whole life. You can't tell me this is the first time you ever ran into this. So some of the things that we use are great questions. So in a nutshell, how your brain works is it's almost as if you have a toggle switch on your forehead, like this, this binary light switch. And when it's toggled down, you're into what I would call low self, which is your ego. And it's narrow viewed and you only see problems and you are seeing yourself as a victim and the world's against you and everything's unsolvable. When you're toggled up, same brain, same human, you're self-reflective. You're in a whole different part of your brain where you're asking yourself questions about how could I have impact and everything's possible because the act of self-reflection takes you from low self to high self. So you can't be in self-reflection and the ego at the same time. So you can't be venting and self-reflecting at the same time. And in fact, I believe that venting is the ego's way of avoiding self-reflection. So a key tool is as simple as a question. So let's say that someone walks by me and doesn't say hello. My ego, low self, will want to fill in the blanks with all kinds of negative. A simple question can toggle me from low self to high self, just saying, you know, gosh, what do I know for sure? Well, I know she's rude and didn't say hello to me. It's like, well, what do I know for sure? Actually, I don't know anything for sure. I know she potentially walked by me. Actually, quantum physicists would say she didn't even walk by you, that she was just a projection of your molecular emotion. So getting into like beginner's mind is a simple toggle from low self to high self. And it can be, what do I know for sure? If I'm judging you, it could be, what could I do to help so that I stop judging and start helping? A lot of times for myself, it's what would great look like right now. And I ask my team that a lot. If they're frustrated, you know, let's say a client didn't get them what they promised in the time they promised it. I say, you know, forget about the client right now. If you were great, what would great look like? Well, I would be making it super easy for them to get the information to me. I'd gather as much as I can without bothering them. And then I would call and confirm and not shame them and just be easy to work with. And then I say, awesome, go be great. So there's these simple acts of self-reflection in the form of a question that get you out of low self into high self. I have one more, a favorite of mine is whether I'd rather be right or happy. So I was just out to dinner recently with my sweetheart, my husband, and we had just a few hours together and I was going to be back on the road and we were sitting silently. We had this beautiful dinner and we weren't really talking to one another because he hadn't admitted that I was right yet. And so I could have had this beautiful dinner, but see, he hadn't admitted that I was right yet. So I was sitting in silence and a question that got me out of ego and into a greater evening was simply, would I rather be right or happy? And in that moment, I would rather be happy. It doesn't matter about being right. I just want to be with my husband. So those are just simple tools we teach that get you there. 
I love that. And I think that that's something that's so important, just understanding what drives our happiness, but also what potentially can pull it away. And so how you can make that shift. That was a great example, because I think we've all been in that moment of, I'm waiting to confirm what I already know. Yeah, or think I know. Or think I know. Because most of what we know, we don't know. Exactly, exactly. And when we can get over our big bad self, all of a sudden it becomes a lot easier. And, Isn't it? Uh, and, and it's a way, self-reflection is a way to get over your big bad self and to move to a part of your brain. And as a leader, I tell leaders that we don't manage people, we manage energy. And a lot of times the energy, people are toggled into their low self and we're at a meeting and we've just heard something that is going to be new in our lives, a new way of doing things or a new requirement. And everybody's energy goes into why we shouldn't have to and why it won't work and why it's a stupid idea. And that's definitely in low self. And what leaders can do to be helpful is manage energy away from why we can't to how we could. And talking about what would great look like, what's our vision, and how can we get there? And I find as a leader, if I just do that simple thing for others, when people are focused on why we shouldn't have to or why we can't, I just through a question, change the energy into how we could. And it just moves people to a different part of their brain. And we come up with infinite possibilities. And it gets people out of opinion, which is low self, into expertise, which is high self. Opinion is why it won't work. And high self uh, expertise is, I'm glad I'm here. I have a lot of ways I could help you make that work. I would imagine that has a lot to do with just the language and the phrasing of how they engage with a group, especially now that a lot of that interaction happens either in a remote setting where it's either Absolutely. from online context or like we are where we're physically in different spaces and we may see each other as we're speaking, but I don't know what's going on behind you and you don't know what's going on behind me. And there's just that more room for miscommunication. Is that something that you work with is sort of yeah. the technology piece of what does it mean when you have a mediated interaction versus a face-to-face -face interaction. So in people who are familiar with your show, you've probably already covered, but only about 7% from one piece of research of the message that comes across is actually the actual what is said. And another 38% is tone of voice and 55% is body language. So if you're down to email, you're filling in the blank on 93% of what is said, right? Now, there's two things that need to happen there. I, as the communicator, need to really use neutral language, which can only come from a neutral place. So I might say I have three projects dumped on me. When I write that, I need to say I have three new projects. So I have this whole place of needing to clean up my language. And if I'm a leader and you're speaking to me or writing to me, before we even get into the work of it, we talk about the how. So I might send you back a love note of an edited email where I took three projects dumped on me. No one does anything around here. I'm the only one who cares about quality. And I might clean up your entire story. We call it editing the story. I might send you back. Here's what I get from your email that we know for sure is that you have three new projects. Now, tell me more. What do we do when we have new projects? We go to Pimbok. We start the initiating process. We start scoping that's what we do. So number one, we all really have to clean up our language. Most of our stress comes from our story, not our reality. 
the same person, me, I got three new projects or I got three projects dumped on me. Same work, but the stress comes from my story and most of our stories we've made up. Now, on the other end of that, because there's only 7% of like an email message, if I'm a professional, I have to give people the benefit of the doubt by choice, just by the fact that I'm a professional. So I either just need to take them at face value very literally and be like one of our good Buddhist friends who just stays neutral. I read it and I just go, okay, what can I do next to help? But if I can't stay neutral and I start to make up a story, I need to make up a positive one because here's what most people do. It's called co-creation. You walk by me and don't say hello. I don't have any of the facts. If I would just say neutral, I would go, oh my gosh, she walked by. I don't know what's going on. So I'm just going to conserve my energy and go add value. End of the story. You walk by me and don't say hello. My ego wants to fill in the blank. It's called gestalt. If there's a property of your brain, if I drew two sides of a triangle, you would want that third side filled in. You want completion. So if you walk by me and didn't say hello, I want to complete the story. I'm like, I know why. And I'll make something up. Ever since she got that promotion, she's rude and thinks she's all that in a bag of chips. Now, when I make up that you're rude, I treat you rudely because how I act is based on my perspective. You respond rudely and then I go, see, I'm right about stuff I make up, except we lose the part about I made that up. So if you walk by me and don't say hello, because I know we're co-creating, because I know that I have power in this, I owe it to you as a professional if I have to make something up to make up a positive story. So I will make up, oh my gosh, she must have been deep in prayer and meditation for peace in the world and didn't see me. If I have to make something up, I have to give benefit of the doubt. Then how do I operate? I'm like, oh my gosh, how are you in this world and not of this world? Can I just eat lunch with you? And you're like, you're a great judge of character. And I'm like, well, that's because I don't judge character. And the same interaction co-created two different results, not based on what was outside of me, but based on my response. So I teach people when we're working virtually that if you earn the contract to work virtually with me, you have to be impeccable with your word and you have to take nothing personally. It's kind of like the four agreements. It's a great book. So that's the first thing I would put out there as my recommendations. I work mostly virtually with my team because I travel. I've written two of my three books with a co-editor who I've never met before, but we worked virtually hundreds of hours together and we still have never met and we've put off great projects. So that's awesome. And so I'm curious because I know, you know, you look at uh, certainly different personality traits and the way that they perceive and create their own stories. How do you avoid the a response, sort of the opposite end response of that neutral response is being passive aggressive versus it being a neutral response? Oh, that's such a good question. I think it comes into the next thing you have to do in virtual relationships, which is foster accountability. And 
I would say they have to be authentic responses. And so how do you keep them from being passive aggressive? It's, it's not just saying the right thing while venting in your head and moving to put that someplace else. It's actually understanding that what you're venting about never even happened. It's actually, it's not about positive thinking. It's about looking for the facts and the truth will set you free. It's about realizing that you're adding a story into it. And the most common one is, you know, you, you get an inner office message from your boss. I need to see you immediately. Right. So we are so good at creating stories around that. And it's a mental process. It's a business discipline to read that and say, what do I know for sure? My boss needs to see me immediately. What could I do next that would add value? I'll go see my boss. Mm-hmm. And let it let it be what it is. Most people believe that people take a lot of time from them. Like, well, they sent me this note. They need to see me immediately. That note took one minute to read. Your behavior is what gave it the next 45 minutes because you spent time wondering about it, talking about it, speculating. And it really is for people to work in a virtual world today, they need to get far more disciplines than they ever have mentally because drama is simply emotional waste. And the way we get rid of waste in the workplace is with processes. And the way we get rid of emotional waste is with a good mental process. And there are ways of thinking, I've taught people as a therapist, that lead to better results. And so I work with a lot of people who do project management and they are very tight with their methodology or with agile or whatever they're working with, but they aren't tight with their own mental processes. So they insist that everybody use this discipline, but they themselves aren't internally disciplined in their own thinking. You know, and for me, I feel like you have to foster a lot of accountability. I was just talking to somebody the other day and she was struggling with her team and their accountability. They all work virtually. And I said, well, have, you know, we have so much great technology, have meetings where you are really working through problems on a format, Zoom or whatever. And she said, well, a lot of times when people come to meetings, they don't come to meetings because their hair is not done or they, and, and I'm like, well, If you're working with them, then have them get a favorite baseball cap, but you can't stop coming to meetings virtually because your hair is not done or you don't, they don't turn on their cameras. Cause I was talking to her about how to increase from 7% back to a hundred percent, even though we work virtually. And she didn't realize how she had fallen for all these excuses. It's like, well, people don't want to turn their cameras on because they want to work in comfortable clothes. And I'm like, well, then get over yourselves and everybody get a favorite baseball cap that you put on and and not do your hair. But virtually, we start putting up with really sloppy mental processes and sloppy behavior in the name of comfort. The ego wants you to cater to your own preference rather than the potential. So the potential is if we all get online, we could have a lot of the blanks filled in. My preference is I don't want to have to be presentable for work. And as a leader, I can't let your preference trump our potential. And it seems like virtual connecting has gotten to be undisciplined connecting. And I don't think they need to be the same thing. So what would your best recommendations be or what are some of the first tips you do to help actually create that discipline? 
I think clarity and expectations where we can all agree that we don't care what you look like. We do care that you're present, you know, and it's not a dictatorship, but for me as a leader, I have some expectations. If we're bringing human resources together, you need to be there just because you're working untethered doesn't mean you're working on um, under responsible to your teammates or under accountable. So I believe in any work relationship, we need to have some expectations and we need to agree on some mechanisms and vehicles on how we'll be accountable to one another and what we can expect from one another. And anytime someone goes kind of feral on us, we wouldn't allow that in an older way of working when we're all present, let's not allow that in a way of working when we all get to enjoy kind of our own spaces in our own homes. So I think setting expectations, I think keeping things conversational rather than confrontational. So you have a lot of touch points and we talk about what's going well and what's not going as well and what we could improve on. And you do have good metrics. I think now than ever before, we need to predefine what success and great looks like so that people can do their own thing up to that point where you don't deliver. And so for me, my team is hardly ever in the same place at the same time, but they're very clear on what great looks like and what their deliverables look like. And and we do a lot of visual scorecarding. So we have a big placemat where you've got your core responsibilities, you've got the projects you're involved in, and you have your personal development. And every week, it's just red, green, yellow, like it would be a project scorecard, except you're the project. And those scorecards, um, we have full transparency. Everybody sees everybody's scorecard. And we even have people rate each other, but we've got a very high accountable group to just really make sure everybody's at the top of their game. That sounds really great. I mean, it seems like, as you're saying, sort of it's the expectations, but maybe also really establishing clear guidelines as to where those expectations should lie. And I think, you know, that's something that even in my research that I was doing for my dissertation was sort of defining what presence is in the workplace where it was like, what does it mean to be fully present? And what does it mean to be sort of in the workplace? And and those two things are very different now. We no longer have sort of a fixed what a workplace is or what presence means. It's like, are you physically there? Most of us are, when you're working in a virtual environment, your time and space are two totally different things. And so you know, when you're doing a virtual meeting, for example, those people that turn off their video, they may be wandering around with a headset on and they're doing, you know, they're multitasking. But they're like, oh, well, I just don't want to be seen because I'm having a bad hair day. Well, but are they fully present with you in that moment? And, and how does that impact the engagement that you're having, but also the end result of what you're trying to get out of that meeting or that interaction. So I think that's a really great piece of advice to really think about that accountability and really understand, you know, what the expectations are of that engagement. Yeah. It's really and great. I love your work on that. And I have found in my work that engagement without accountability creates entitlement. And we do a lot of virtual working in the hopes that it's a more engaging way to work for folks. But engagement without accountability really creates entitlement. But I'm 53. I'm probably one of the last generations who actually had an early career where you went to work and showed up eight to 
I want to say five, it was never eight to five. And you couldn't take calls at work. We didn't have cell phones. I mean, I sound like a dinosaur. As I've transitioned over to working virtually, I find a lot of people, and I know you work with anxiety and novice and, and those things. A lot of people don't grow in their technology skills because they don't engage and overcome that hump. Um, and then a lot of people actually believe that working with technology is um, a lesser, it's always a disadvantaged situation from being in person. And I believe it's not. I think that's the story we tell ourselves to justify our lack of presence or engagement. Because I have had incredibly fulfilling relationships, like I said, with avatars, with people I've never met. I wouldn't know them if I saw them on the street. But the reason I get so much out of my interactions in tech-supported interactions is that I am present and I go all in and I try and figure out ways to, if I haven't heard from somebody, ways to use my raise your hand or ways to use my check-in or ways to use my chat box. Or, and so there's a lot of folks who have disengaged and stepped down and then blamed technology. Mm-hmm. Instead of stepping up and engaging, even if my reality is that the only way we interact is technology, I still have accountability to succeed in that reality. So most people want to say that my circumstances aren't the reasons I can't succeed, but your circumstances aren't the reasons you can't succeed. They're the reality in which you must succeed. So when I started to say, oh my gosh, we do more technology stuff. I had to get my butt in gear and learn. And I don't learn from classes. I learn a lot from YouTube, but I learn by screwing up 10 podcasts and then redoing it. I'm that type of learner. Me too. Me too. I hear you on that one. It's a pretty powerful thing, though, when we can be present with ourselves. And I think technology gives us that chance to have that feedback. I was speaking with someone the other day about uh, using video tools for training. And it reminded me of back in the day when I was ski racing in high school, and we used to do video. And then we watch back the video. And now we can do that like right away. We don't have to sit there and like process the whole thing and play it back on a, you know, Eight millimeter or whatever fact, it was. That's the best. That's a perfect tool for self-reflection. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect tool because when you were skiing and your coach could have told you all the time, like you keep dropping your left ski behind. Like, you no, keep I'm doing not. It. You no, keep I'm doing not. It. You're like, I do not. And then you want the video doesn't lie, right? Mm-hmm. Video doesn't lie. But a lot of times people need to take the drama out of it because my feedback's not accurate and they can't get past your ego. But leaving you just with the video, I had somebody who was very intimidating in meetings and I said, don't take my word for it. Just turn your video on and record it. Watch your afterwards and then let me know what you found out and so I love that technique and I don't think we use it enough and I think we've really got to watch I talk a lot about mindsets we've got to watch our mindsets I remember you know just the stories people make up that technological relationships are inferior people all these kids who text today you know aren't going to know how to put a sentence together I'm like well why would they have to I would rather they just text me I don't need a sentence. But my son was pretty little early on. And I traveled, I've traveled their whole life, four to five days a week. And I feel like I've been, they would tell you I've been a pretty good mom. We were at a gathering and that older woman at the time said, you know, oh, I'm so sorry your mom travels all the time. And that must be hard for you that you don't get to see her except on the weekends. And and my son was being very polite. He's like, oh, you know, no, it's okay. But he wasn't really talking back to her we got in the car and I said well that was an interesting discussion with Mrs. Harrington and he was like 
seven. And he goes, he goes, mom, she was talking to me about how bad it was. You traveled like, like, doesn't she know about Skype or anything? And it just showed me that people assume that you're not a good parent if you aren't present. When my routine is I get to the hotel room, they would have faxed in the algebra homework from my oldest. I would get on Skype or now we got FaceTime. We could FaceTime each other, but this was before that. And I would read them books. We would spend the evening together. And it's funny that way because technology is used by passive aggressive people as an excuse and it's used by non-accountable people as an excuse. When it could be such a a great facilitator, I can be where I want to be in my life and participate in the world economy and never have to physically go there. It just, to me, still amazes me that we have these great lives. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I talk about actually in my latest book, that's uh, Digital Self-Mastery Across Generations, is what I observed in my own kids. My son was really into gaming. And at the time, we were living in Sweden. And then for a short period, they were going to the international school. But then we moved to California. And I was really worried about he's playing all these games. And he spends all this time in antisocial behaviors, the way that I perceived it. And then I spoke with a friend of mine who's a gaming expert. And he was like, well, it's so social. He was like, so is he playing with other kids? And I'm like, yeah, he's playing with kids all over the world. The world. And, <laughs> and it's just that then I would go into his room and I'm like, I can hear all these different people talking and they're simultaneously playing together and on Skype and all of this. And, and for him, he didn't, perceive that as a different type of interaction than when he had friends over, which at that age, it was a lot of parallel play, where they'd be playing the same game and they're sitting yeah. on the bed together, you know, both I have that too. And, and it's to them, it's just like, I'm just hanging with my friends, whether they're physically there or whether they're on the other side of the planet, it doesn't matter. I'm just hanging with my friends. And for us that are Xers and older, we still have to sort of overcome that story that mm-hmm. that it's that that's antisocial behavior because what we see is them sitting in front of a screen. Yeah. So I think that it, that's a big That's thing. so true. Between my husband and I, we have eight sons. And I wrote a blog, it's been a few years back, that got a lot of engagement from many different directions. But people were saying things like, you know, these kids should be out reading books and they shouldn't be gaming. And I thought about my son's gaming experience from an HR perspective. So my son comes into my room one night in October and he said, mom, what are you doing November 22nd? And I said, honey, I have no idea. He goes, well, I'd like to make some plans because that's when, you know, Call of Duty, whatever was coming out. So this kid's playing a month ahead of time. And I said, well, sweetheart, the odds of me waiting around at Target till midnight back in the day before we could get it online for you to get a game are super low. I said, that's not going to happen right before the holidays. I'm not going to buy you a gift. So you're going to have to fund this yourself and you're going to have to figure it out yourself. He got so incredibly innovative. He called my father up who he said, you know, dad, here's how we do um, holidays in America. Now you just give Visa gift cards and it's a much safer way than sending cash in my card. And if you want to do that early, I could help you out with that. He gets the money. He finds a ride because he caught his brother smoking Marlboro cigarettes and said he wouldn't tell if his older brother would take him. So he's innovative and genius and life hacking. He gets the game. He doesn't need any training. He rips it out of the cover in the back seat. He sticks it in and he just jumps in. He doesn't get upset when he gets feedback. He doesn't cry about some boss feedback. He gets killed. And then he goes, I won't do that again. 
He doesn't have a problem where he has to go to HR to complain about a coworker. I hear them go, dude, you're horrible. We're switching rooms and you can't play with us anymore. Like they get direct feedback. And then what I loved was the process improvement. There's a kid sitting there and he's texting all of these codes and hacks and they're sharing with all the kids outside of the game and they're immediately process improving as they go. And they're, they're talking with kids from Turkey and all over the world in multiple languages. My, my son can swear on like eight languages, not a good parent. And that's when they hit me just like you, Heidi, where I thought, you know, as an HR person, a person who doesn't personalize feedback, trains themselves, gets innovative, figures out their own budget, acquires what they need for themselves. I'm like, that's the perfect employee. Absolutely. Those are the employees we want. And Generation Z is so much more prepared for it than we are. And even the millennials, the millennials are sort of somewhere in between. And so they've picked up some of our bad habits. But at the same time, they're, you know, some of them are sort of picking up the hacks. They've sort of started the wave of building the expectations of how to be more present, things like, you know, putting your phone on the table when you're with a group of friends for dinner and the first person that reaches for their phone has to pay for the dinner. Those kinds of behaviors are starting to get integrated in. I think actually the worst offenders are our generation because we're sort of super curious, but we have, we're working with the old storylines. Yeah. So. And, and I've seen it so many times where I'll begin a keynote talk because I train all over the world and people will say, put your phones away and pay attention. And I'm like, take your phones back out. I created every one of these slides to be shared on Instagram and Snapchat. And because just because I can't walk and Snapchat at the same time doesn't mean younger people can't walk and Snapchat at the same time. And I've even seen HR folks, they were making a policy around cell phone and Twitter usage. And I said, you guys, before you get into this, how many of you have Twitter accounts? And I'm not kidding you. There was like seven people and only two of them had Twitter accounts. And they're the ones making the policy. You know, the U.S. government, the senators are asking how one could even make money on Facebook. They didn't even get like Facebook and they're making they're deciding things like net neutrality, which is disastrous. Absolutely. But I think that that's true. And I think that all of us have conversation to have, given what our work is and what we want to deliver. What will we choose around how we use our technology? Because I think everybody's looking at the outside like, well, you know, what's the rule on technology or is it bad or is it good? Or, you know, it's like, or we could just look at for this moment, for the work we have at hand, what helps and what hinders is basically the question for us to just talk about as a team. I have a son that when he gets sad or anxious, just last night, if I would have said, you need to talk to me about your work, how did it go? Put your phone down. But instead, I picked up on what would help us right now. And he was going through, you know, super funny Wendy's Twitters about dogging the competition. And it was simply him and I, me coming around the counter and the two of us sharing a screen for a moment was far more connecting than me trying to get him to set the screen down and connect in with me. And, and I think 
there's something to that for leaders following, but making sure that we're requiring people to be accountable for the necessary, not for our comfort, but for the necessary. Well, absolutely. And I mean, as you mentioned, a lot of them, the people that are making the rules, they don't really experience what it is they're making the rules about. And just like, I mean, I remember 15 years ago when we were designing social strategy things for organizations and trying to get the leadership to participate. And they were saying, well, you know, we don't want to engage in these things. They didn't want to have a LinkedIn profile. Then it was, I guess, only about 10 years ago. But still, if they're not engaging in something and that's where the conversation is happening, then how are they supposed to participate in that conversation or understand what is behind the conversation if they're not even there to be participating in it? Or have credibility for the decisions that they make, right? And I talk about in my second book, Reality-Based Rules of the Workplace, um, a value equation that I think any age should think about. The value of your work has three components. Are you performing today? And what that means is you consistently deliver what the organization needs, not what you like, not what you prefer, like, but what does the organization need? And are you consistently delivering it? And then two, are you ready for what's next? Are you going to be relevant into the future? Are you not only just keeping up with the times, But will you be performing far into the future? As my kids started on Facebook, I followed them to Facebook because I need to parent and do my job. And then they went to MySpace because they didn't want parents. And, you know, it got to the point where they're all the way over on Snapchat. And I know my kids have two Snapchat accounts, the ones that they want me to see, the ones that they don't. And quite honestly, I have so many alias names on Snapchat that I can get around that whole don't friend your mom because they think I'm a 17-year-old, you know, high school student who knows where the parties are. It's like, we have to be ready for what's next. So are you performing today? And are you ready for what's next? And it's not just being technologically savvy. It's being a world citizen. Do you know your biases? Do you know true data about this planet and global warming and starvation and poverty and uh, women's rights? And are you a global citizen? And are you evolving? Are you doing your self-reflection? And then the last piece is how emotionally expensive are you? What's your drama quotient? What's your pain in the buttness? And we have found that that emotional expensiveness quotient outweighs any other thing you have three to one. So it's like you bring to the table your performance today and in the future, but you subtract from that anytime there's noise around you. And so it's not just being technologically savvy, it's being mentally disciplined while being technologically savvy. Yeah, it's so true. And I think that that whole piece of just really understanding what your, you know, what weight are you carrying, and sort of that baggage that that can weigh down your whole organization if you don't manage that better. uh, And it can be anything. I see people hoard knowledge so they can be the only one that knows this. I see people disengage. I see people be passive aggressive. I see people resist change. It can be a lot of flavors. And in fact, you said something earlier about personalities. I believe that knowing our personality differences can be helpful and that A lot of times personality is just the flavor our ego shows up in rather than the flavor we show up to help in. Mm. So a lot of times go, well, that's my personality. I'm a controller. Sorry. You know, it's like, but no, you have choices to make whether it helps or hurts. And so somebody said to me one day, 
he was raising his voice and I said, you know, I think it might be easier for all of us if you would just compose yourself and speak in a more normal tone of voice. I think it'd be easier for us to hear you and help you. And he kind of hit his hand on the table. He goes, I'm just passionate. And so afterwards I talked to him about that. He goes, I'm just passionate. And I go, you know what? Passion shouldn't hurt. Mm. So I don't think that was passion. I think that was ego. There's a difference. Yeah. So I think we just have to be careful that we are outliving our excuses. And the best way to outlive your excuses is to say yes to what's next and fully engage, get fluent as possible, but not attached. Because that's the other thing that happens in technology, right, is people make the change and then they would tell me things like, Sai, I need time to grieve. You know, I would give them a new software and they're like, well, I'm still, I need time to grieve the old one. And I'm like, well, this whole grieving thing, why did someone die? And it's like, it don't get attached to your software. It's just like a foster child. It's just foster software. You have to love it and be fluent in it, but I'll be back for it. And so I talk to people a lot about getting fluent, but not attached. Like if you put something in front of me, my accountability at work is to get fluent in it, but to be able to give it up at a moment's notice for what's deemed next. We could have a whole podcast yeah. on that, but the whole thing of digital transformation, I mean, it's costing organizations between, it's costing them billions, basically, between 70 and 90% of digital transformations fail. That's a wow. lot of money being thrown away where either... You have people from the organization that are like, I'm not going to bother learning it. It's time for me to retire. They leave and they're taking all their wisdom and knowledge with them. Then you have the people that are like, fine, I'll do it. But they're not really learning it. They're really grieving, as you say, the old software. And then you have the other people that are like, okay, we could do this. And then you also have the people that are like, oh, this is so great that they spend all their time focusing on that. And then the rest of their work disappears. Yes, so, to the side. And so, you know, I love that you're sitting and writing that. It's sad to hear those numbers. And the thing is, is that most people think then the technology plan or the choice of software or hardware wasn't a good one. But resistance is what's killing that change. And a lot of people say like change is hard and I'm like well it's only hard for the unready so if you had a flip phone and I had a smartphone and you had skipped 23 upgrades and our employer gave us both new cell phones that are smartphones change wouldn't be hard for me I would just go to the cloud and get it and move on but it is for you because you skipped 23 upgrades you would be in a fetal position and so there's so many things out there where we say things like change is hard but in my research it's not. And I think the next podcast we get to do together, and I know you're coming my way so we can talk about this. I get to interview you is the way we've approached change management is that the leaders do everything to define the change and orchestrate the change and get super users and the employees just sit back and their only role is to critique it or get in drama around it. But in business readiness, to the business, change management is all about making change least disruptive to the people. And business readiness is making change least disruptive to the business. And so in my book, No Eagle, I really point out how business readiness is a shared accountability model. And the way in which we've handled transformation and change, the old change management model is just completely outdated. And it's time for a very modern philosophy based on shared accountability. So that's a whole nother topic, but I wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, I love it. And and while we're at it, we should start talking about diagnosing and treating the drama queen, because I'm sure there's a whole nother piece on that. Because they're the ones that when the new technology comes, they're like, oh, <gasps> like there's no there's no drama there 
Just don't create it. An, don't create it. <laughs> well, what's happened with the drama king or queen when technology, new technology comes their way is that they have not kept themselves ready. They've mm-hmm. skipped these 23 upgrades. So they have to resist change. It's their only option. Otherwise, they'll be exposed as not competent mm-hmm. and not ready. And so the drama is in proportion to their lack of readiness. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I work in healthcare. If we have a patient who codes as, you know, heart stop or, or breathing stops, um, nobody gets in drama around it. And yet somebody's dying because we're all heavily trained mm-hmm. and we just go in and we look for all the signs and we do what we need to do. And we resuscitate that patient. When people get in drama, it outs them as far as how underprepared they are at work. And the fact that we have been telling them they're meeting expectations probably has been alive for quite some time. Mm. So interesting. it's interesting. It's like, hold that thought. But it's like, <laughs> I know so many people that are so overqualified, though, and over rehearsed that they also get into the whole imposter complex where they create drama, where they think they're not prepared, but they're actually over prepared. And, and, you know, I'm sure maybe not in the health space, but I see that a lot in the workspace with scholars, because they're so trained to be ready for critique, that they're not no. ready for praise. The ready for critique and not necessarily ready for praise in the world of the scholar, but I would tell you too, that's the flip side of the ego where you are in constant analysis and you're in that imposter syndrome and you're just waiting to be found out. A healthy person feels both of those things, imposter and drama, but a healthy person who's disciplined continues to process what is real, what is true, what can I do next to help, how can I stop judging, start helping. And so there are many times I'm sitting around the table and I'm like, these people think I know more than I know. If I'm an ego, that causes a lot of drama and anxiety. If I'm beyond ego, I say I have confidence that I have some things to bring to the table that are really useful. So let's talk about what I know and what I don't know. And I'm sure that together we're genius. And so I'm not an ego. I don't think I know the answer. I have confidence I could help with this and facilitate together we're genius. Let's figure out how to move forward. Either side of that, where they are over critiquing and are worried about being found out and that and somebody who is resisting change, all those dimensions are just different flavors the ego comes in. Yeah, well, I love that. And I love the way you brought it back to the co-creation piece of sort of, you know, knowing yourself and knowing your strengths and weaknesses and where you can contribute as a group. It's very cool. So you know what, we've totally gone over our time, but this has been so wonderful. <laughs> We're just gonna have to do another podcast. We need to, Heidi, because I to. like we just at the table when we met each other, we have much to talk about. Your Absolutely. work is fascinating to me. And Likewise. I hope that every one of your listeners has already eaten up and consumed all that you have already produced. And I look forward to your new book. Thank you so much. Well, actually, the the new one is kind of a little bit of a sort of a a swing over to the side. Actually, the Digital Self Mastery Across Generations came out earlier this year, but I've just launched a new book. That's, oh, my gosh. Uh, the Gluten-Free Business Traveler's Guide, um, which is I, actually- We need this. Yes, Can which I? is actually putting my research into practice and also just collecting resources from all of my fellow gluten-free road warriors so that we can thrive a little bit better. 
I have one of my colleagues here is a road warrior and gluten-free traveler. And so I'll buy first copy of that book and pass it around my office because that's a fantastic idea. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's just sort of a fun pet project, but the fun thing is to also see where technology fits in and and helping us find better resources because now we can in a a totally different way, no matter where you land on the planet. So it's pretty cool. It's unlimited. And that's why I think the quicker people quit fearing technology and the more they really jump in like a marriage and have a messy relationship with it and figure out what works and what doesn't work, the more freedom they have. Because to me, technology is just absolute freedom. Absolutely. And I like freedom. We love freedom. And with that, I think we're going to close because otherwise we'll probably go on for a whole nother hour because I love talking with you. Anyway, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today, Sai. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you to you digital selfers for joining us today. We look forward to catching you again on our next episode. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a moment and give us a rating and review so that it helps others find us in all of the podcasters. So thank you again, and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for The Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.